Hey, guys. So a few years back, uh, I was interning with a, a church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and uh, I was there for a whole summer, and while I was there, I partnered with this organization. It was called Dream Center, and they would go and, like, give out groceries in these low-income neighborhoods. It was really cool, and we had this one neighborhood that we went to, um, and sometimes if people were disabled, they, we would pack a box full of groceries and, and bring it to them. And there was this one guy, and I, I always made sure to be the person delivering the groceries to his apartment. His name was Mr. Hooker. Interesting name, I know. Mr. Hooker. And this was like a, a probably 80, 85-year-old guy. He was, he was old, and he was like kind of crusty. You know what I mean? You know how some old people are just kind of crusty? Yeah, he was old, ba- like not, not in very good health, but he was so awesome. He was a war veteran. And this man loved the Lord, like loved the Lord. Every week I'd go and I'd drop a box of groceries off at his apartment and I'd come in and without fail every week, he'd be sitting in this big old nasty recliner with a thick King James Bible. Like I'm talking like this thick, sitting on his lap or sitting on the ground next to his recliner. The type of Bible where when he bought it, it was probably like this thick, but now it's like five times as thick just because it's been so well worn and read and um, pages are pulled out and kind of stuffed back in. Just this thing's old, and and I'd walk in there and I'd be like, Mr. Hooker, give me some truth, and you just start preaching to me. And he he would have really insightful things to say. He's so old, it's kind of hard to understand him. And there was one week I walked in there and I said, Mr. Hooker, give me some truth. And he started talking to me about the end times and about my my generation. And I I had some things to say. I was like talking to him about how, as our conversation developed, how it's really hard for our generation to, to follow Jesus just because there's, there's so many distractions available, right? We have the internet. It feels like sin is so easy, especially things like sexual sin are just so easy. So it's hard for our generation to follow Jesus. And Mr. Hooker, like, waited maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 seconds. He just looked at me, and he responded. And I'm not going to, I'm going to be really annoying, and I'm not going to tell you what he said. It's very profound. I'm going to tell you what he said at the very end, okay? I just wanted to capture your attention. I hope, I hope you're like, you're there, right? Mr. Hooker and his old recliner just talking to me. And he responded to my, my comment that it's hard to follow Jesus for our generation. I'll get back to that. So the past couple weeks, uh, we've been in Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7. Zach preached two weeks ago on Romans 6. Last week, Grant preached Roman, the first six verses of Romans chapter 7, and the message that has really been emphasized over these past two weeks is identity, okay? What God did to impact and and change our identity as believers, and I'm going to kind of recap some of that and really just recap the whole message of the Bible in general, okay? Right, the the message that we've covered the past two weeks and the message that is, is communicated across the whole Bible is that we have a sinful nature, Every one of us, we are born into sin. We are, like, by nature, extremely sinful. And because we're sinful, we've been separated from God, right? That's what we've been talking about through Romans. We've been talking a lot about sin and how our sin separates us from God. And that's not good, right? God doesn't want us to be separate from him. So he actually came, right? He sent his son to deal with our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Zach quoted it a few weeks ago. It says, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, Jesus didn't just die on the cross to forgive us of our sin. He died on the cross to make us something different. He he died on the cross and rose from the dead so that we would be righteous and be given a new identity. 
right? And Grant talked about last week how we're released from the law now. Like, we're, we're under a new law, and it's the law of the Spirit. It's the law of life. We're forgiven. We, we have a new nature, a new identity if our faith is in Jesus, and that is really good news. And today we're going to be going through the rest of Romans chapter 7, and the theme is once again identity, okay? But the theme that we'll, we'll see in Romans 7 is, is that there's like some conflict there when it comes to living in our new identity. There's conflict. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to read the rest of Romans chapter 7. God, you are so good, and I just pray and ask that you would come into this room right now and that you would speak to us. And God, I pray that, that your spirit would convict us today and empower us to live in the identity that you paid for on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to read the whole rest of Romans chapter 7, picking up in verse 7. What shall we say then, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. I just lost my spot. <laughs> um, okay, there we go. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, it was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war, the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Okay, so we're going to talk about all of that. Uh, before we really like dive into what this scripture is saying, though, I want to define a couple things. And I actually think people have done this over the course of the semester so far, but I know some people aren't at some services. So two words I want to define. The first is the word flesh. That's a word that's thrown around here a lot in Romans chapter 7. And you might be like, what, the flesh? Like, like our body? What's, what's that mean? When Romans 7 uses the word flesh, what I want you to think of is sinful nature. Okay, Roman, Romans 7, talking about flesh, what that's talking about is the sinful nature of humanity. Another word is the word law. And this has already been defined, but the word law, let's just think of it as the moral and ceremonial instructions set forth by God in the Old Testament. 
and not what forms the basis of Judaism. This includes things like the Ten Commandments, the sacrificial system. It's pretty much the Old Testament's instruction from God on how we can be right with him. Okay, that's what this means by the word law. So here in Romans 7, what we see happening is Paul is using his own experience to explain the law and sin in, in the conflict between our old identity, our flesh, and our new identity in Christ. So I want to look at this scripture in, in two sections. So the first is verse 7 through 13. And in these few verses, Paul is explaining the purpose of the law and how the law relates to sin. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend some time talking about the law and talking about sin, okay? And as I was studying these, these few verses, these six verses, there's a few takeaways that I, I think that we're supposed to get from these six verses. Five, specifically. So the first one. A purpose of the law is to define sin, okay? A purpose of the law is to define sin. If you look at verse 7, it says, What shall we say then, that the law is sin? By no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So through the law, Paul knows what sin is, right? He, he has the Bible, and the Bible communicates to him what sin is. If we back up and look back at Romans chapter 3, verse 20, it says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So a purpose of the law is to define sin, to show us what sin is. But in, in defining sin, the law also kind of adds like a weight to sin. Okay? It adds a little bit of weight to sin. Look at, look at verses 8 through 9. It says, Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So what this is saying is, is through the law, through the commandment, sin kind of has like power. It has, it has life. And if you, the, the only way that I, I really came to understand this is if you think of like laws that exist in our society. Take stealing, for example, right? If stealing is not defined by the law as, as illegal, then if you go and you steal something, you're not going to be considered a transgressor of the law or a lawbreaker. Is, still, is stealing still wrong? Yes, duh, of course. But because the law defines stealing as illegal, it, it also like communicates a, a consequence that comes if you steal. That's exactly what the, the Old Testament law did for us in a moral sense. Okay, so a purpose of the law is to define sin. Another takeaway is that the law actually spurs us on to more sin. Verse 8 says, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Covetousness is just like a fancy word for jealousy. So what Paul's saying is the law actually like made me a jealous person. Like because the law explicitly condemns covetousness, I'm like more, co I'm more coveted, covetousness. It's a hard word to say. In a way that this makes sense is like if you imagine a child, okay? Who, who's ever tried to tell a child not to do something? You tell a child not to do something, and what happens? They, they go and they do that thing you're telling them not to do. But even take it past like a child. Like I look at my own life. Back when I was in high school, you know, I, I knew that doing drugs and drinking underage and all the nonsense I was up to, I knew that those things were not good. In a legal sense, I knew that they were against the, the law that we live under here in this country. I knew that on a, in a moral sense, they were not good. 
And I also knew that my parents didn't want me to be doing those things. But just the fact that it was wrong, like, pulled me towards it even more. I wanted to go and do it just because I knew I wasn't supposed to. It was kind of exhilarating. And I think that that truth explains an element of humanity's sinful nature. We gravitate towards sin. I heard someone say once that sin is magnetic to the human soul. We are just, apart from Christ, pulled and drawn towards sin. Because humanity is really, really wicked. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That is the, the truth about the human condition apart from Christ. We are drawn towards sin. We are sick and we're deceitful apart from Jesus. It's kind of depressing. But it's true. Another takeaway, the law is impossible for us to keep. The law is impossible for us to keep. In general, when you look at Romans 7, this is kind of the tone, right? Paul is kind of saying, like, I can't do it. You know, that's kind of the general tone of Romans chapter 7. If you look at verse 10, it says, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. I think that this scripture communicates what I mean when I say the law is impossible for, for us to keep. What does it mean in verse 10 when it says it promises life? The law promises life. That sounds good, right? Life is good. That's important. We need life. It promises life because the, through the law, God is like articulating to humanity how we can be right with him. He's setting up a path for us that we can walk on. And if we walk on that path obediently, we can be right with God. The thing is, we can't do it. Like we can't be right with God on our own. And that's not because God's cruel. It's not like God is just giving us this task that's actually impossible for us to keep just because he's cruel and weird, you know? No, it, it's because he's perfect, and we're not. So in our own strength, we cannot keep the law and defeat sin in our life on our own. It's just impossible. Paul is the one saying this. That's what, it's, that's what it means when it says it promises life. It promises life because ideally, if we do keep it, we would be right with God. But even Paul understood that he could not do that. Paul, Paul was a better Christian than all of us in here. And he even understood that he couldn't keep the law on his own. The funny thing is, oftentimes, I think we still try to do that. You know, we rely on our own religious works, our own good deeds, our own righteousness. We think that if we can try hard enough, we can earn God's love. And that's just not true. In Philippians chapter 3, uh, I'm not going to read the whole scripture for you, but Paul, like, runs through his resume um, as a spiritual leader. And his resume is, is nice, okay? Paul has done a lot of good stuff. He is, he is like a religious elite. He's way better at following God than any of us are, as I already said. But in verse 7, he, he chips in. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And he's talking about his resume. He counts it as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. God loved Paul just as much with his good works and strong resume as he did without it. God loves you just as much with your self-righteousness as he does without it, okay? You can't, uh, 
earn right standing with God on your own. God loves good people, right? Jesus went after good people like, like Paul, religious people, I should say. He also went after people who are totally broken, the outcasts of society, sinners, tax collectors. God's after good people and he's after bad people and, and our righteousness doesn't save us. And the sad thing is that good people go to hell every day. That's really sad. That's really, really sad. And the reason that that's true is because our goodness can't save us. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. He doesn't say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You can come to the Father through me, and you can also come to the Father by being perfect on your own. No, we can't do it. It's impossible. The law is impossible for us to keep. Another point, fourth takeaway. Sin is deceptive, and it leads to death. Verse 11, I'm going to read verse 11 and verse 13. It says, sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. And then verse 13 says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. I read these verses and I just think, man, sin really sucks. (laughs) And the reason that sin sucks, like my, my, personally, the thing that is most irritating to me about sin is just how deceptive it is, right? Sin is a liar. Sin never follows through on its promises. C.S. Lewis, he said, sin is an ever-increasing desire for an ever-diminishing pleasure. Sin promises, like sin tells us that if, if you do this thing, you're going to feel good. It's going to be better for you. And then it never actually is, Right? I think all of us have experienced this. Sin's deceptive. I, I, I know that people in this room, even just this past week, have had that internal argument with the voice of sin. You know what I'm talking about? Like when sin just comes knocking at the door and, and you just start to entertain it, and part of you like kind of wants to do it, but then the, the righteous part of you, the voice of reason, is like, no, that's a bad idea. You're not going to feel good if you do this. You're going to regret it. It's a bad idea. Run. But then the sinful part of you is like, yeah, but it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to help. You know, it's going to make me feel satisfied. I, I, you need this. It's just once, right? God, God will understand. He'll forgive you. Just because you do it once doesn't mean you're going to do it again. We all have experienced that, right? It's a trap. <laughs> you know this? You know this picture? It's a trap. Star Wars. Not up there. Never mind. Um, <laughs> I had a funny picture, but it's not up there. It's a trap. You know, you know what I'm talking about. It's a trap. That conversation, just in general, like if you catch yourself having that conversation in your mind, just run away. Like sin is deceptive. It's not going to give you what it's promising to give you. Proverbs chapter 7 is a, a, a really cool chapter. It's about sexual immorality, adultery specifically. And it, it personifies the sin of adultery as a, as a her, okay? And verse 21 and 22, it says, With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast. Yes, this chapter is about adultery, sexual immorality. I think it applies there. But it, it, this applies to just any sin in general. It's seductive, right? The enemy 
like, is so seductive in the way that he draws us to sin. And when we give in, what we're like is an ox on its way to be slaughtered. It is a trap. In talking about this, it makes me so thankful, though, for God's word. Right? It makes me so thankful for God's word. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I, sometimes I just can't even trust my own judgment. When I'm engaged in that internal dialogue to sin or to not sin, you know. And the, the beautiful thing is that we can really trust God's word in those moments. In, in the past, I, I had a long history and, and struggle with sexual sin. I'll talk about that more here in a minute. But the thing that often brought me into freedom when I was struggling with that internal temptation, that voice of temptation, was God's word. Right? God would just remind me of something in his word, and I would, I would speak it, I'd meditate on it, and I would find freedom. We can trust his word over our own judgment. And the thing with sin, it, it doesn't just deceive us, it actually kills us. Verse 11 says, through the law, sin killed me. Chapter 7, verse 11, through the law, sin killed me. Romans 3.23 says the, the wages of sin is death. The reason sin is so bad is because it, it separates us from God. This is by far the worst thing about it. We were designed for a relationship with God, and sin puts separation between us and him. Our sin, in a way, it's almost like committing adultery on God. Right? You know, I'm, I'm married to Ashley. We're in a covenant together. And if I went off and I, I started talking to some other girl, like, that'd be a that'd be really bad, right? That's adultery. That's, that's not good, you know? And, and um, that's how it is with God, though. We're designed for covenant relationship with him. And when we say, no, God, sorry, I'm going to go do this other thing that you hate, that you sent your son to die for, we're committing adultery on him. I heard this quote this past week. It, it really hit me. Sin is man saying, God, I want nothing to do with you. And hell is God saying, as you wish. Sin is man saying, God, I don't want anything to do with you. Hell is God saying, as you wish. Hell and separation from God is like the, the destination at the end of the path of sin. If, if we live a life of sin and we're, and we're never redeemed by Jesus, that's where we're going to end up, right? Because we've spent our life saying, God, I don't want anything to do with you. And there comes a time where he says, as you wish. Sin is a big deal. Fifth takeaway from these first six verses. The, the law is still good. Okay? You might be depressed from, from what I've talked about so far, but the law is still good. All this talk about sin and, and the law, you might be like, man, I, I'd rather just be in the dark. I'd rather just not have the law <laughs> so that I could not understand how bad all of this is. Romans 7 verse 12 says, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So the law is good and the, and the reason it's good is because it reveals the truth about our condition, okay? The law shows us just how desperately we need a Savior. It sets the stage for King Jesus to come and to heal us and redeem us and make us new. If we didn't have the law, like, the stage would not be set. You know, we wouldn't understand how broken we, we actually are. So the law is still good. The law is holy. And Jesus came, and he did it, right? I, I, I quoted earlier, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And earlier I talked about identity. 
I, I so love that scripture because Jesus didn't just, he, he, yes, he came to deal with our sin and to defeat our sin and, and forgive us of our sin. The book of John, John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But Jesus also made us righteous. He also, as I was talking about earlier, died on the cross and rose from the dead to give us a new identity. And I believe the rest of the, the, this chapter in Romans illuminates the struggle, right, the conflict that existed in Paul's life and, and exists in a lot of our lives when it comes to living in that new identity. But Romans 7, man, these next few verses, they can be really confusing, okay? I, I meet a lot of people and have a lot of conversations with people about Romans 7, and it seems like people have a lot of different takes on it, and they even use Romans 7 in a variety of different ways, and I, I think the thing about these next few verses of Romans 7 is, is that there's, there's specific verses where if you take them out of context, they could be extremely confusing. Grant, in the beginning of the semester, recommended that you read through the whole book of Romans in like one sitting because it's a sequence, right? Each chapter kind of leads into the next chapter. And specifically in Romans 7, if you separate it from the chapter before it and the chapter after it, you can walk away with some really confusing ideas in your head. For example, if you look at, at verse um, 14 in Romans chapter 7, I'm just going to read it out of context. It says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. The law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So if you just compare that to a couple, to, to a couple verses, one in the, in the chapter after it and one in the chapter before it, it's, it's confusing, right? Ch Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So Romans 7 says that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh. But then just a few verses later in chapter 8, Paul is saying you're not of the flesh, but you're of the Spirit. Kind of confusing, right? Or if you back up and look in Romans 6, it says you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's verse 11. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. But Romans chapter 7 says, I'm sold under sin. So in 7, he says, I'm sold under sin. In the chapter before, he says, consider yourselves dead to sin. So which one is it? It's kind of confusing. Should our takeaway from Romans 7 be that the Bible contradicts itself and that we're stuck in sin forever? No, it's not the point. It's not the point. As I said, Romans 7 illuminates this idea of like conflict between the old self and the new self that Christ made us. So there's two takeaways from the, the rest of this chapter I want to I dive into. And the first is just that, that living in our new identity is a battle. It is a battle. I'm going to reread verse 15 through 14, or 15 through 20 in Romans 7. It says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. There's a lot of do's in there. <laughs> So one thing, I guess I'm, I'm kind of going to get into, like, what I think Romans 7 isn't saying. It's kind of a confusing way to look at it, but 
It's how my mind works when I read Romans 7. One thing Romans 7 is not saying, it's Romans 7 is not a permission slip to sin. Because Paul talks about, I do what I don't want to do, and I do what I do want to do. He's, he's, that's, that's not like, oh, Paul struggled, so it's fine if I struggle. Like, Paul had this struggle with maybe sin. I'm not really sure what he's talking about, so it's fine if I have that too. And no, that's not the point of Romans chapter 7. If that's how you understand Romans 7, then what's going to happen is there's going to be an expectation created in your mind that specific sin struggles are just going to linger around forever. And that's a bad interpretation. Okay, if we look back at Romans 6, verse 6 through 7, it says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Man, those verses communicate victory and newness to me. Me personally, back... um, like my sophomore, junior year of college, when I was really struggling with, with sexual sin, I already talked about this a little bit, but I, like, per, I connected deeply with Romans 7. I connected deeply with the I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I, I do want to do. And I would read that after I would give in to some sin struggle. I would, I would oftentimes go and I'd look at Romans 7 and I'd feel comforted. I, I kind of feel like, okay, you know, it's okay. Like Paul struggled too, so it's, it's fine. And that is, I would, I would say that that was not good for me, actually. What I needed to connect deeply with in those moments was I am free from sin. I am no longer enslaved to sin. This is not who I am anymore because Romans 6 says so, and the rest of the epistles in the New Testament say so. I'm new. I'm a new person. But that disagreed with my experience. Right? So it was really hard to believe those things. But those are the things I needed to believe. And in fact, I can point to the moment in my life when I started to find freedom from sexual sin, porn addiction, all that stuff. The point in my life where I started to live in freedom is when I actually began to believe specifically what Romans chapter 6 had to say about me in my life. I started to believe it, not just uh, on a conceptual level understand it, but I started to believe it. And when I would go into those internal battles with temptation, the way that I would fight it changed. It went from like, I really hope that I don't do this. Like, I, I'm just struggling. Like, I, don't, I need to talk to my accountability part, whatever. It went from that to like, God, thank you that this isn't who I am. I'm a new person, and this isn't me. That's the old man that died with Christ. I'm a new person. You, your word calls me righteous. Your word says that I have been set free from sin, Romans 6, 7. What Romans 7 is doing, it's just informing us of the conflict that takes place and, and often happens in the life of a believer. It's not, it's not commanding us to stay in sin because Paul said, I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I do want to do. But I meet people who take it out of context and understand it that way all the time and even use it to comfort themselves for staying stagnant in a sin struggle. And if that's how you see it, I'm telling you guys, like the battle's already lost. Right? You're never going to change or be free if that's how you view a, a struggle with sin in your life. I work with uh, recovering drug addicts at City Gospel Mission, and uh, we recently went through this like five-week thing. I teach a class there where we just really zeroed in on sexual immorality. And sorry I'm talking a lot about sexual immorality. It's, just, it's, my, it's my struggle. So like, 
it's easy to communicate all this through that lens. But um, I spent five weeks. I felt like God really told me to, to press into this stuff because a lot of these guys have super deficient views of sexuality. Aaron knows. He used to work there. These guys, are just, they have a really non-biblical view of sexual morality, and it's a faith-based program. So I just sensed God was telling me, like, just dive into that for five weeks. So I did. And we, we went into what scripture says. We, we had a lot of really good conversations. They asked me a lot of good questions. And there was one week where a guy stopped me, like, as I was talking. He raised my hand, and he was like, John, I, I've, I've been doing really well with sexual sin in my life, but I just feel like I'm never fully going to be free. Like, I just feel like I'm going to get out of here, and there's going to come a time where I fall, I fall back into it. And I'm just so scared of that, you know? And I felt like the Holy Spirit gave me this in that moment. I, I looked at him and I said, how do you think that would make the devil feel if he heard you say that? And he was like, well, it would probably make him feel pretty good. Like, it would probably make him feel like he's won and, like, he has a stronghold in my life. I said, yeah, how, how do you think it would make the devil feel if you said, I've been living in freedom from this, and I believe that I am free from this. And I don't ever have to go back to it because it's not who I am. I'm a new person in Christ. How do you think that would make the devil feel? <laughs> he's like, it'd probably make him feel pretty bad. It'd probably make him feel like he's lost. And I said, yes, absolutely. And you, I even wonder, like, how, would that, how does that make God feel when we say things like that? I hear Christians talk like that all the time, like talk from a place of, of defeat. And, guys, I'm all about being real. It's not, it's not good for us to be in denial about the struggles in our life. But we need to have God's perspective of who we are. We need to have God's perspective of the sin struggles in our, in our life, or else we're not going to be free. He is the one who can set us free. In Christ, you can actually live different. In Christ, you can be free. And in Christ, you actually can live in alignment with your new identity. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to look at, uh, at Colossians. This is kind of a lot of scripture right here, but I think it's really relevant. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 3 through 15. And if you, like, feel really convicted right now and you're like, man, I need to press deeper into this identity stuff, read the book of Colossians. It's perfect for identity. It has so much to say about who we are in Christ. I'm going to read this for you, starting in verse 3. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, and in these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called. And in one body, and be thankful. I read the last part wrong. It's okay. 
put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. That is the call from Colossians chapter 3 for us as believers. Put off the old, put on the new. Put off the old, put on the new. And kind of right in line with this, the the next takeaway that I see from Romans chapter 7, it's kind of funny, given what I just said. You can't do it. (laughs) Okay? You can't do that, but God can. You are not capable of doing any of what I just said. It's kind of funny. (laughs) But God can. God can do all of this in your life, and he wants to. Let's look at the rest of Romans 7. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Man, the whole chapter is is leading up to this point. Paul is just kind of screaming out at the end. He's just going through this this internal, I can't do it, but I want to do it. Part of me is evil, part of me is good. What's going on? And it all culminates here at at the end. He's, He's saying, I can't do it. Who's going to rescue me from this body of of death? The awesome thing is there's an answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? Jesus has so much power. God gave us the law to show us that we can't clean ourselves up, and then he sent Jesus to just come and do it for us. In all this business of putting off the old and putting on the new, as I said, you're not going to be able to do that. The only way that's possible is if God's grace comes into your life and empowers you to to change, to transform. You can't walk away from sin on your own. You keep going back to sin in your life. You might feel like that. God can deliver you. He can make you new. Your, your, Your porn addiction, you out there, you can't kick it. You can't. It won't work. But God can. His grace can empower you to change. You can't fix your disordered eating problem. You can't do it. But God can. And he wants to. Okay, you can't fix your your struggle with depression and anxiety or suicide in your life. You can't fix that. God can, and he wants to. Okay? You can't muster up enough strength to be a person of spiritual discipline. It's not going to work. It's just going to become religious activity in your life. God can do that, though. He can empower you to live in alignment with your new identity, and he wants to. So have hope, right? This is good, man. God can do this, and he loves us. So what do we do with this? I think that what we do with this is we need to be people who depend on Jesus. We need to be people who depend on Jesus. Um, I was introduced to this idea a few years ago. I can't remember who said it, but it just, it just jumped into my spirit and stuck with me. Dependence is a sign of spiritual maturity, which is backwards from culture, right? In culture, the culture we live in, independence is a sign of spiritual maturity. When someone's 45 living, the, living in their mom's basement, you're, you're going to look at their life and say, you are immature because you are depending on people still when you should be independent, okay? That's just embarrassing. But in the kingdom, dependence is a sign of spiritual maturity. And the, the people that I know in my life who 
walk in the most freedom, the people I know who have the most impact for the kingdom of God here on this earth, the people that I know who just, you look at their life and it's like, man, they love Jesus. They're, they're a person of prayer. They love people so well. It's the people who are the most dependent on Jesus. So because we can't do any of this stuff on our own and we desperately need God's help, let's depend on Jesus. And I, I believe that, like, the only, like, the, the, the first step in that is it's, it's yielding, right? It's, it's surrender. We, we can't depend on Jesus if our life is unsurrendered to him. So to you, non-believer, what does this look like for you? What does it look like for you to, to depend on Jesus and, and to surrender to him? I, I heard this quote a while back. I don't know who said it. I don't, I don't know who said any of my quotes. I just write them down on my phone, and I don't put the name under it. I'm sorry. I need to, I'm, I'm trying to change. But <laughs> all, yeah, all the gospel, this is to you, non-believer, you in this room who have not given your life to Jesus, you don't know Jesus, all the gospel costs is for you to give up everything you were never meant to be. All the gospel costs is for you to give up everything you were never meant to be. You have been living your life unaligned with your created purpose. You have been spending your life on things that you were not created to spend your life on. You were destined for a relationship with King Jesus. Okay? And, and anything else, you weren't meant to be that. So when you say yes to Jesus, you're saying no to all those things you were never meant to be. You are, you are truly you when you say yes to Jesus and have a relationship with him. So do that, right? It's, it is so worth it. I promise you it's worth it. Live in, if, it's a bad idea to live in the world for 60, 70 years, and then you're about to die, and you're like, wait, I was wrong the whole time. I want to follow Jesus. Both two of my grandparents did that, and it's like, it's just not a good idea, right? Say yes to Jesus right now. So to the believer, I believe we, what does it look like to yield and surrender and, and depend on him more? I, I believe it's just being desperate like Paul. It's not really like a good answer to that question, but like just be a person of desperation and, and dependence on Jesus. I can think of some of the most powerful life-transforming moments I had with God are the moments when I was most broken and most desperate for him to come through. And the thing is, I, I shouldn't have to let my circumstances get me to a spot where I'm like that. Like, I, can, I, I should be able to be like that right now. So my challenge for you guys is just, like, you desperately need Jesus. So just understand that, okay? And, and I, I I don't know how to do this, but I, I just want our church to, to see that we need him. And we can't change apart from him. And I want to look, look at the first part of Romans 8 because I believe it just confirms um, all of what I'm, I'm, I've been saying here, talking about the second part of Romans chapter 7. So Romans 8, verses, verse 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. 
there's, there's a battle when it comes to, to living in alignment with this. There's a battle that comes, that, that happens when it comes to living in our identity. Okay, and we can't do it on our own. We desperately need God, but like there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is so good. That just, that just speaks what I'm saying. Jesus has done it. You're not condemned now because of your sin. You're actually free. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. I believe that, that God's, this has been on my heart this week, preparing for this, this sermon. I believe that God's call to our church is to believe him regardless. Okay, and what I mean by that, what I just read is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that you are free in him. I believe that God's call to our church is to believe him regardless. So much of the time, we let experiences, emotions, sin struggles shape what we believe. And church, we need, to, we need to let truth shape what we believe more than anything else. right? I think some of you guys, some of us are so wrapped up in the I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I do that you're, you're actually more confident in your old fleshly identity than you are in the new identity that Jesus has given you. And something's wrong there. God wants you to be confident in his work in your life. He wants you to be confident in there's no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus. He wants you to be confident in I am free from the law of sin and death. God wants us to believe him regardless. I believe some of you guys are, are so convinced that God doesn't love you, that you need to work for his love, right? When what I just read, Romans 8, 3 says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. That is like the biggest I love you that has ever been spoken through an action in all of history, Right, Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus coming and dying is God telling you, I love you. Personally, individually, I love you. Some of you are so convinced that God, um, that you're, you're a mistake and a failure and you hate your life rather than believing what scripture says, believe him regardless. 1 Peter 2.9 says you're chosen, you're royal, you're holy, you're God's own possession. Guys, let's just believe him. Like, what would it look like if we actually believed what the Bible says about us? Don't let life speak louder than truth. Let, let truth be the loudest voice in your life. And what I mean by that is so much of the time, life becomes a bigger and more important voice than truth. The things that happen to us, as I said before, our sin struggles, our experiences, they affect what we believe, and we need to elevate the truth of God's word over everything. And when we do that, I promise you will start to find freedom. You will start to live in freedom. I guarantee it. Like, I, I feel like almost all sin is rooted back deep down in a belief issue. That's why you keep running to this thing. It's because your belief is not in alignment with what God wants you to believe. John 8, 31 through 30, 32, Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide on my word, you're truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Guys, let's be people who let truth speak louder than life. God is calling us to believe him regardless of what happens. Elevate his word over everything else. 
and we will start to find freedom. Earlier, I, I um, talked about Mr. Hooker. I'm going to go back there. So Mr. Hooker, I was, I was telling him, like, man, it's so hard for our generation to follow Jesus. We're so, like, distracted and pulled in different directions. Sin is so easy. We have the internet. Like, it's, it just feels like sin is so accessible. It's just hard, Mr. Hooker. It's hard to follow Jesus. And Mr. Hooker looked at me, like I said, maybe 15, 20 seconds went by. And he said, it's not hard. You just have to make up your mind. And you know how old people, a lot of times, like, don't use that many words? I'm a, I'm a rambler. You might be able to tell, me being up here. I'm a rambler. Mr. Hooker was not a rambler, and I think what he said is so profound. Like, it's not hard. You just have to make up your mind. What do you believe? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us. Worship team, you can come down. Jesus, I thank you that you gave us a new identity. Thank you that the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Thank you that we're a new creation, and through your grace, we can put off the old and put on the new. And I know that there's a lot of people in here who are more convinced of their identity in the old than they are in the new. There's people in here who are just totally beaten down and destroyed by sin struggles in their life. And Jesus, I thank you, one, that you have compassion. You say, I, I see you, I know you, and I love you. And God, I pray that we wouldn't see Romans 7 as a, an excuse to stay where we're at, but, but God, that we would realize that you are calling us into freedom. You are calling us into freedom. And we just need to believe what you have to say, God. If we're your disciples, we'll know the truth, and the truth will set us free. God, I pray that you would just move our church into a season where we learn to believe what you have to say regardless. That we would elevate your word and your truth over everything. Even if, even if we go home and we fail and we sin right now, like today. God, that that experience would not cause us to doubt the truth, but that we would elevate truth over everything. And I believe that when we do that, you will lead us into freedom. And that is what you want to do, because that's what you died for, Jesus. Like, how foolish would it be for us to not take hold of everything that you died for? We want everything you have for us, Jesus. Our life is so much better with you than apart from you, and we cannot do it on our own. We can't fix ourselves on our own, so we need you, Jesus. Just come. God, I pray you'd help us to just fix our attention on you as we worship. And I just believe that you have already broken chains in our life. And today, you just want us to see it, that you have done that. You want us to see that we are free because you say so. So just come. Come.